my name is Joe Jackson. I'm an interviewer, journalist and broadcaster. And for the first decade of this century, I did for the Irish radio station RT Radio 1 a music series titled Under the Influence. Sadly, that title was subsequently used, be it stolen consciously or otherwise, for a similar MTV show. So now, after revisiting the master tapes of those old interviews, I've decided to turn the best into a podcast series called The Music That Made Me. I may even add the subtitle Made Me Want to Make Music. Either way, what follows is one of those shows, minus music, which for copyright reasons I can't include. Some of the full shows and many of my other radio programs are available on Mixcloud.com. And if you want to read any articles that arose out of these interviews, you can check out JoeJacksonInterviewer.com. Enjoy the show. Okay, there's a long intro, so bear with me on it. Okay, one, two, three. Okay, uh, Nils, uh, Nils Lofgren, welcome to Under the Influence. This Thanks. is a show about musical heroes, right? And you're the first person in the series who has actually released, is releasing a CD of one of their heroes, someone like Neil Young, the new album. But I have a huge list to choose from. You played on Jerry Lee Lewis's latest album I saw there. You also have on one of your own albums, Willie Nelson, David Crosby, Graham Nash, and of course you play in Springsteen's East Street Band. So any of those heroes, or was it somebody else originally altogether? Uh, initially I grew up playing classical accordion and I fell in love with rock and roll through the Beatles. Uh, had a, something, something to do with being 12 or 13 and not understanding viscerally rock and roll yet, but people used to play me like Elvis or, uh, probably even some Jerry Lee and I didn't understand it emotionally and I would just analyze it musically and go, oh, well, that's just three chords. That's a bit boring for me as a classical accordionist. And it was really the Beatles specifically i remember i want to hold your hand just blew me away because there was a couple minor chords there were these counterpoint harmonies that just made rock and roll sophisticated enough musically combined with probably getting old enough to start understanding it emotionally and it just exploded in me and i freaked out and fell in love with the british invasion we're talking about the animals every british band the hollies the yardbirds the, the kinks the stones all of it and instantly, I kind of simultaneously discovered Motown, Stax Volt, right. and then through the Beatles and Stones, really, their heroes like Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, and just the whole wall of music fell on me at an early age. And would, uh, was, I want to hold your hand, the famous Beatles recording that some critic referred to, the Aeolian something in it. There was something about it that classical musicians even stopped and went, wait a second, this is a pop band. Yeah, you know, I was so... Um, First of all, musically, it was so uh, impressive to me because of the harmonies and probably all that stuff. I just didn't analyze it. I was, for the first time, emotionally and viscerally taken by rock and roll. And it was, I think, a function of the more sophisticated uh, musicianship, qualities, writing, and mixed with, uh, you know, obviously the Beatles, two of the greatest harmony, three of the greatest singers ever to this day, you know, right up there with anybody, the Everly Brothers, Hollies, any great harmony singers with all that rough soul in their voices that we had never heard to that point. Shall we? I think we, I mean, we have to play I Want to Hold Your Hand. I mean, it would be criminal not to. Yeah, I mean, hey, it's, it stands the test of time. It was a you know visceral turning point in my rock life. Okay, great stuff. Sorry for walking you into that. But well, that was an obvious one to pick up. Uh, uh, Nils, we were talking earlier, before the show started, about you talked about playing the accordion. You also said that one of the first tunes you would have played was Lonely Bull by Herb Albert. I mean, that was this is all around the same time, isn't it? Yeah, at the, it's, it's strange because I do have this cornball melodic side to me. And okay. there was this period where um, 
I recall buying this 45 of uh, strange things. Like, again, the attraction was the melody against chords were more sophisticated, but bizarre things like The Lonely Bull by Herb Alpert and Tijuana Brass. I remember, uh, I'm embarrassed to say it, but I'm not. Uh, Red Roses for a Blue Lady by Probably Wayne better. Newton. All oh, right, okay. Wayne Newton. Okay. Uh, just it's a lovely melody the melody nailed me very smooth yeah. you know kind of soulful smooth voice yeah. a la Everly Brothers-esque and um, and then what was the other one you know uh, everybody loves somebody sometime Dean Martin Gino. and I would get these 45s and learn them on the accordion and and about that same time, my brother Tommy, we had a beatable guitar, and my my dad had. He didn't really play, but he danced. My mom and dad danced, loved okay. music, danced. It was like their hobby, dancing. So when we showed an interest, they understood the healing properties and therapeutic qualities of music, and they encouraged us taking lessons and studying it, which was a great gift to have your parents behind. You. And were they also listening to the likes of Dino and Wayne Newton? They were. And they played a lot of big band swing music, oh, yeah. which was great. You know, Benny Goodman stuff yeah. and all that stuff. And it Sam is great Kenton. music. Though I think that it really takes a cool person to admit that that is part of their legacy too. And if you're an American, that that has to be part of your legacy. Hey, it's it's classic, classical, beautiful music. Yeah. And strangely, uh, from like '90 to '95, we had this thing in America called the Cable Ace Awards, which was the award show for cable TV before it became big and absorbed by the Emmys and Oscars and all that. Uh, but the Emmys, I'm sorry. But cable TV, the last five years, I was their musical director. Okay. I had a nine, uh, 14 piece swing band with nine horns, and I wrote with an arranger all original swing music, okay. a la Cab Calloway, and tried to stick in blues licks and play and conduct. It was a great education, and I went back to all those classic swing standards to get inspired for the originals I wrote. Okay, so look, let's play. That's for those who forget just how great a melodic pop song around the time of the Beatles, and it was Dino who knocked the Beatles off the top of the charts. It was. Uh, I mean, should we give Dino or Wayne or Herb? A lick again. Ah, uh, those three, I say, let's go for Dino, because that's a whole genre of style, too, that's kind of integrated into rock and roll. We took a lead from those guys. Yeah. Was it Everybody Loves Somebody? Everybody Loves Somebody Sometime. Well, is there any Freeman arrangements? Which I never thought was very good, but anyway, Everybody Loves Somebody. Cheers. <laughs> I love that. My dad gave me all those records when I was a kid, well, so I know them intimately, too. I mean, those guys too. and the style and the whole Rat Pack thing. Okay, Niels, okay, you're listening to Joe Jackson and Niels Lofgren and Under the Influence. I was mocking the uh, arrangement there by Ernie Freeman, but it was only because as soon as he and Dino got the pattern for that hit and had a huge hit, they repeated it ad infinitum for the rest of the 60s hey, on what, a lot of his songs. But what a gift to have a song that, that's that powerful, you know, that touches that many people. And it's still alive. Yep. And you didn't. You mentioned earlier, and I like to pick up on it because it's something I believe in relation to music. You talked about the healing therapeutic properties of music. So was that something your family was really aware of? Well, yes. And, and again, through dancing, it was something that every weekend my folks would go dancing. But during the week, they'd play this big band swing stuff in the home. And uh, I was born on the south side of Chicago, lived there for eight years before I moved to the Washington, D.C. area in Maryland. And about five years old, I wanted to play accordion. Every kid on the block played accordion. And my parents, that, that was my point, instead of like being intimidated or as too much money, they were thrilled that I was interested. And once I took a liking to the lessons, they financed them for 10 years. And that was the only reason when I picked up the guitar pretty late at 15. At 17, I was on the road playing professionally. And that would have never happened if it wasn't for those 10 years of classical accordion studies, really. So they, 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 they bought into it at every level, not just the obvious level. Totally. And even when the Beatles came out, you know, it's funny. They were cool enough to not be afraid to hate the look and the long hair and be able to 
listen to the Beatles records and go, that's good music. And I, 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 uh, that's hats off to them. But the Beatles were also clever or George Martin because they'd do something like, uh, and I love you and I love her. You know, which was out of the music manner, something like that. You know, and they were kind of appealing to your mom and dad too. They were clever. They were. It was gorgeous. And my mom and dad were were some of the people that initially just didn't write them off because of their look, and and had the uh, the guts and the love of music to acknowledge the Beatles for the for, for the greatness that they offered all of us, yeah, all yeah, generations. Absolutely. Yeah. You say there very casually. You were on the road at seventeen with, with Neil Young. I mean, that's not just an aside. Well, you know, I'm, I was. Uh, I hit the road at 17 in middle America. That wasn't a career. We loved the okay. Beatles. We loved Jimi Hendrix. He didn't do this for a living. Okay. And even my friends in school, I ran away to Greenwich Village looking for a record deal. And one thing I knew, um, I knew nothing about the music business. So I'd sneak backstage at every show and ask questions. I snuck in on Neil Young and Crazy Horse in the cellar door. Neil was kind enough to give me his guitar. I sang some songs for him from the first Grin album, which was two years away from being made. All right. And I said, we're going to L.A. anyway. And he said, look me up when you get there. And I did. And one thing led to another. And by 18 years of age, I was living with David, his producer. We were the house band at the Corral, a famous little watering hole in Topanga Canyon. Okay. Uh, Taj Mahal used to play there for free Monday nights, only if you lived. It was only for the locals. And we'd always be throwing out people sneaking in from San Fernando Valley. But Neil said, I'm making this after the Gold Rush Project. I want you to play on it. And I was out of my mind, thrilled for the opportunity. Um, and he would jam with my band at the corral. So I knew Neil through David. So, uh, And then to my horror, he said, I'm mostly going to have you play piano. Oh, yeah. And I had to tell him I'm not a piano player. And it was fascinating because he told me, well, you've been playing accordion, right? Since you were five. I said, yeah. I said, well, you'll figure out the piano. I just need some simple parts. And thanks to the accordion, again, I didn't have to lose that gig. All right, okay. But it was piano, and that did help you get a, a, a contract for your own band, didn't it? Well, yeah. Well, basically... Um, I played piano on most of that record. I did play some acoustic guitar, and I did not own a guitar. So he lent me this funky old D18 Martin, which at the end of After the Gold Rush, he gave me as a gift, which is my most treasured possession of guitars, and I used it on the uh, new album where I sing Neil Young songs. Obviously, I had to use that yeah, D18. Yeah, kind of makes sense. And, it makes... and that David Briggs at the time, too, um, we made an album without a company with David producing the first Grin record, and that way, you know, there was no wondering if you could work together. Yeah. The companies were always, well, what if something goes wrong? I said, well, here's the record. It's done. You like it or you don't, and we got our first deal. Okay, will we play a track from, from Neil's album with you playing according on the piano? Say that again. I... <laughs> you playing accordion licks on the piano, and then you know another great another great story. Um, we were doing Southern Man, oh, yeah. and the whole song is halftime. Bum bum, Southern Man, better. That's the beat, right? Halftime. So we take a lunch break. Neil's up top. It's at his home in Topanga in the beautiful hills. And Ralphie, the drummer, and I just... I never left the piano because I was scared. I was playing an instrument I didn't know how to play, so I always practiced. Ralphie sat there, and we were jamming. Dum, dum, dum. So halfway through the jam, like after a half an hour, the old accordion beats... Mm, pa, mm, pa, mm, yeah. pa, that's the yeah. accordion beat, right? Yeah. I started double time, and... And Ralphie picks it up, starts playing a backbeat. They come back from lunch and we're roaring on this jam and Neil goes, what's that? And I'm like, that's, that's you know, Southern Man with the accordion beat. We picked double time and he said, well, that's the solo. Every time we get to the solo, go there and you hear it. 
We get to the solo and bang, all of a sudden there's a backbeat. I'm doing the accordion riff, little beer barrel right hand. And then we drop back down in the halftime. And again, thanks to the accordion, I came up with an actual arrangement that uh, was useful. Well, thank you for the best introduction I've ever had to a song I'm about to play. Because now, folks, there is no other song I could play other than Southern Man. Is that okay? Beautiful. If you got the time. <laughs> that was cool. That's got, us, that's got us right into the show. Okay. So, uh... Yeah, Nils, that was that was that was Southern Man, and you did. Uh, you had four albums with Grin. There were four albums before the self-titled solo album really broke you through. Right. So I mean, was that a good time? You were still relatively young. Was it a good time where you initiated early into the excesses of rock and roll? Was it a safe time? Was it one of your better times of life? It. it yeah, it was one of my better times. I, I. I. This is my 40th year on the road, so I feel blessed. I'm playing the E Street Band. I mean, come on, it doesn't get any better than that. I love bands. Yeah. I've been in some extraordinary bands with Ringo Starrs, all-star bands, Neil Young. I love bands. I'm a band person. I know how to be in a band. I know how to lead a band. I'm quite happy to be in a great band and not lead it. So okay. it's, uh, but, but what happened during those times, um, Grin made four records, never had a hit or commercial success. So I carried on almost reluctantly as a solo artist, but I wanted to keep recording. Grin went out with a farewell concert at Kennedy Center. We were the first rock band permitted to play the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., try to go out with some style. But sure, I mean, the, back there, there was, you know, some excesses. All my heroes were drinking and yeah. smoking pot. So, you know, we jumped along. And But, you know, fortunately, the focus was always the music. Okay. And uh, it, it never kept us from working or, or plowing through and being creative. Because it also was the time around those years where uh, Hendrix, Joplin, Morrison, I mean, in the early 70s, had lost it. Yeah, and, and in particular, um, certainly early on, uh, we lost one of my bandmates. I made the first Crazy Horse record, and then Danny Witten died on okay. us. And even before Danny, Jimmy Hendrix was the big one. I mean, that, to me, him uh, and Jeff Beck and Roy Buchanan, I thought were always kind of off in their own stratosphere as guitarists. And, you know, Roy died on us later. But initially, when Jimmy died, I was just so, you know, grief-stricken. And early on, I just realized that, hey, you know, this just because you're brilliant... Just because I love you doesn't protect you from anything, yeah. and uh, it was a real eye opener. And, you mean I love you from fans? Yeah, just like you know, like you, just somebody like Jimmy Hendrix was such a visceral, huge part of my life and my emotional makeup that you know this was an early lesson. Like, yes, yeah, so what? You know, life life happens to anybody. Yeah. Just yeah. because you love them doesn't mean they're not going to be you know, hurt if they overdo anything. In this case, it was drugs. Sure, but Janis Joplin, Joplin also around that time said the loneliest feeling in the world is coming off the stage where you've been made love to by 65,000 people and you're alone in your bedroom. Yeah, and she was another, I feel like, tortured. So I got to actually meet Janis a bit, big brother in the holding company, <clears throat> made friends with them as a young kid bounced around LA and New York. And actually one time in Philly, I remember, it was great. Back in those days, you'd have like the vanilla fudge, Janis Joplin, Big Brother and the Holding Company, Jimi Hendrix, all on the same bill. And I snuck backstage. I was hanging out with Big Brother, and Janis walked up, took a chug of a Southern Comfort, and handed it to me. <laughs> now, what am I supposed to do? Of course, I'm supposed to take my chug and pass it along, which I did. Right. Which, you know, I mean, I was very impressionable at the time, and I, I felt sad for Janis because I didn't get to know her, but yeah. she seemed sweet and kind and kind of overwhelmed by the business she was into. You still get that feeling listening to her, don't you? There's a, a broken, aching spirit there somewhere. Yeah, and, uh, you know, back in those days, too, I remember Jimi Hendrix once, because <clears throat> I, I, I opened for him. Grin opened three shows for Hendrix in the in 70. 
So I got to knock on the Winnebago door and introduce myself and tell him what a fan I was. And I, I saw him at the Baltimore Civic Center sneak walking down a hall to, to play. And I was alone in the hallway. I'd snuck in. in and this was when he was, looked like he weighed 85 pounds. Yeah. He was depressed and strung out. And I said hi. And, you know, he offered me that same smile, stone smile and trying to be gracious. And I was like... Mr. Hendricks, you know, you, you look look kind of bad. Are you okay? He said, not really. And my manager's got me doing 64 cities in 65 days. And, you know, as a kid, I was like, well, what the hell is he doing that to you for? And But it was that kind of time where, like right now, somebody like, there, it was a million-dollar industry about to become a billion-dollar industry. And right now, if Jimmy was around, they'd have minders keeping the dealers sure. away and keeping the yeah. groupies to two or whatever. Yeah. It was Not because they love Jimmy, because they love their investment. Sure. But that th those guys were kind of groundbreaking in those days, and sadly, there were massive casualties. Paid the price for being groundbreaking, yeah. I'd like to play a track from you for, from the self-titled first album. So would you pick one for us, and let's put it in here before we move on to the more recent stuff. <clears throat> yeah, you know, um, one of my favorites off that first record is... Uh, kind of a neat little acoustic turnaround thing. Warnell Jones, my bass player, helped me with it. An uh, obscure, great uh, British drummer, Ainsley Dunbar, played with this, this song called uh, One More Saturday Night. Cool. We're going right on time. This is zipping along, isn't it? Hey, I've, it's, it's as organic I've as anything the I can I've do. i got the stories. Yeah, yeah, and there's a good feel to it. And I mean, to a lot of people, it's just going to be blown their fucking skulls. You know, even the idea of casually walking up to Hendrix. You know, the mythology in rock of, I know, of being no, able listen, to access Jimmy No, Hendrix, listen, you know? you know how blessed I feel that I accidentally happened to be a teenager in the 60s. I mean, yeah. it's a beautiful thing because yeah. it was arguably one of the greatest explosions of music. Sure. Okay, Niels, we're talking there, and while the song was playing, I was actually saying to you, you know, there's a lot of listeners who will be, you know, that will be blown apart by the idea of being able to knock on a Winnebago or bump into Jimi Hendrix. But you also, as the kid who was uh, uh, got the first thrill from I Want to Hold Your Hand, you toured with Ringo, you were on stage with her, you played with him in, in the band. So all of that must still be very special. Listen, it's I've had so many blessings. It's, you know... I don't feel guilty about it, but I, I realize I'm extraordinarily grateful and lucky. And I guess I was 14. My dad took me to see the Beatles at DC Stadium. And I, I sat there, uh, these screaming, sobbing girls around us. And uh, I think tickets were four, five, and six dollars. <laughs> and I'll never forget, you know, because they really inspired me and turned me on to the whole field of rock and roll. So I, I discovered everything in pop music through the Beatles. And uh, in 85, after a fantastic concert at Wembley Stadium, we did three nights at the stadium, Ringo, um, who had done a drum beat book with Max Weinberg, our drummer, a fabulous book about drummers called The Big Beat, invited us to a birthday party at Tittenhurst, which was Lennon's own home that he had owned at the time and was living in. And we went there. I was out of my mind because it was Ringo. And he had a studio set up to jam. And I waited. It must have been three in the morning because I was determined. And I got finally got to play guitar with Ringo. And we jammed for quite a while. And it was fun. And later on, I found myself having a drink with him. And he gave me his phone number. Said, stay in touch. And, of course, here I am in Bruce's band. Been invited to his home. He knows our drummer. So I started calling him every couple of weeks. And just, I'd come to England every year and do acoustic shows. Quite a bit of them. And he'd come down and see me. And we maintained a friendship. And in 89... He rang me, which I got, God bless Ringo, I don't know, of all the people that I've met that are famous, he'll actually call you once in a while just to see how you're doing. Very good. It's very yeah. rare. Yeah. And and this time he did, and, and he's like, by the way, I'm, I'm, I've decided to do my first bit of playing since the Beatles broke up. I'm going to put an all-star band together. Everyone's going to take turns doing their songs like a round robin, and I'd like you to be in the band. What do you say? And I was stunned, and I just said yes. 
And I was about to, you know, thank you, thank you. When you know we're going to rehearse, blah blah blah. Sign me up. I'm there. And I didn't even ask who was in the band. I really didn't care. But then just before I hung up, I said, by the way, are you curious who's in your band? And I'm like, am I curious who's in my band with Ringo? Well, yeah, I guess so. I said, well, it'll be Dr. John, Billy Preston, Joe Walsh, Jim Keltner, Levon Helm, Rick Danko, and your uh, sax playing friend Clarence Clemens. And I was like. I was speechless. I was like, I'm about to be in a, that band for four right. months. It was just brilliant. You know? But also, I mean, uh, Bruce's band. I mean, you did say it doesn't get better than that. So is that does it is it as powerful and, and visceral and exciting as it looks and feels? It's even more, you know, right. because for me to navigate 40 years on the road, and I, I, it's more of a question if you've grown up to be someone who loves to be in front of an audience, truly loves it. It's like healing. It's medicinal. And the potential when you're in a band, like the few bands I've been in with Neil Young or Ringo, the E Street Band, when you know you have a band of that caliber, and it's funny, no matter how tired you are, which I'm quite tired at the moment, we've just done two nights, we're jet lagged, I traveled from Phoenix, Arizona with my wife Amy, but tomorrow when I wake up, I know that I've got this singer with these songs, because it's my band too, and he never brings, he brings his A game every night. He never has an off night. It's not like, oh, I wonder if he's going to remember the words tonight. I wonder what kind of mood he's going to be in. Is he going to be drinking too much? This singer we've got brings his A game every right. night. And it's so exciting to wake up on a show day and know that guy's going to be doing that. You don't have to worry about him. So it makes it easy to prepare and get excited. And I go over two hours early and practice stuff and really try to, you know, because there's a danger of having too much adrenaline coursing through you when you walk out especially in these giant stadium shows and with the excitement that goes along with an artist like Bruce. So I just take the day to ease into it and do my own little bits and okay. pieces to prepare. So when I walk out, I'm excited, I'm up, but I'm not totally overstimulated because you get too overamped and excited, your head will pop off and your, your hands are, certainly aren't going to do what you tell them to. <laughs> so it's a fascinating, wonderful um, experience to be in a band that's that organic. We change the show every night. Bruce changes the show as we go, calls audibles during the songs. It's it's totally an environment I thrive in. Excellent. No, you can feel it from you. Listen, I want you to pick a track now to fill in from one of those two, two of your more recent albums. You can pick either in any sequence. There's one I'm going to pick to end with. But, you know. All right. You know what? Something I, I rarely do covers. And of course, now I've just done an entire cover record. But this is live in the studio, exactly what I've done here. But uh, two of my heroes growing up, all I have to do is dream by the Everly Brothers. <laughs> I, the, what I pointed out to you there, if listeners want to hear, is that it's the one thing I'd written down on the list because I just thought it would be, I played it and I thought I'd love to play it. So great, thank you for picking it. All I have to do is dream. Uh, you're listening to Joe Jackson, Nils Lofgren on Under the Influence. I wrote in my little notes before, I wondered, and this is the romantic in me, was that to Amy? Well, All I Have to Do is Dream is one of the classic love songs written by the Everly Brothers. And of course, I was, uh, you know, kind of newly in love with my wife, Amy, who I've been with for 12 years now. I was living in Arizona. I recorded it there at a local studio. So yeah, of course I sang it to my gorgeous New Jersey girl, Amy. Well, I met at the Stone Pony, actually, oh, did you? at a gig in like 80 or something, right. and I couldn't get her to come to Boston on the tour bus, and being an arrogant, young, drinking musician, I thought, I'm in Jersey every month playing a bar, I'll see her next month. Right. I didn't see her for 15 years. Wow. 15 years later, 12 years ago, at the Rockin' Horse, uh, a rock club in Scottsdale, Arizona, she walked up to the end of a show and said, hi, remember me? And I'm like, 
yeah, you're the one that got away. Where the hell you been? I've had 15 years of hell. I'm glad you finally showed up. And so anyway, we've been together ever since. And you got a boy called Dylan. Dylan, 17-year-old stepson, Amy's okay. boy. Okay. Uh, great athlete, loves music. He's not playing yet, but he knows okay. I'm, I'm available as a teacher. So he's the same age you were when you kind of got, well, got in with Neil anyway. Yeah, and it's interesting because the kids today with the iTunes, you know, yeah. from Dylan's room, I'll hear Rockabilly. I right. hear this French torch singer. It's yeah. kind of like the French Dean Martin. And all kinds of stuff in between. It's it's really he's got that's some great, great though, isn't it? That you can access all that on the internet. And it's that's brilliant because they go seeking it out, and they very you know unafraid, like kind of I was to love what you love. And yeah. I was blessed with parents that supported it. And Dylan has the same. I mean, Amy and I. One of the things I loved about Amy when I first met her, we were talking on the phone. I was on the road the second time I met her, and actually started exploring a relationship. And we were talking about music, and uh, Peter Gabriel came up. And just like that, she recited the entire lyrics to uh, In Your Eyes over the phone to me. And I knew I, I had a special girl there. Absolutely. Okay. So listen, Neil Young on the new album. I'm going to have to admit something that is heretical in the history of rock and roll. You two will probably have me kicked out of the country tomorrow morning. Neil's voice never got to me. I never got it. Really? Right? I love the songs, and it's just a blind spot in my listening, right? Mm -hmm. So it was only, and I have to admit this, I mean, I know all the hits, I know all the songs, I know the albums. It was only listening to some of your recordings in advance of our interview, like The Loner, which I didn't know, that I got it. Really? Thank you, Nils. Thank you. You know, I always felt singing with Neil, um, you know, after the Gold Rush led to uh, Tonight's the Night and tour in, here in the UK, and... In the 80s, we did the trans tour and album. And then the 90s, I did the MTV Unplugged with Neil. But when I sing with Neil, I always felt that there was a, a similar haunting innocence that we both had in our voices. And um, uh, again, this was a labor of love. It was not my idea. It was my manager, Anson's. I would have never thought of this. But as I worked up the songs, I realized there was a batch of them that I felt I could make my own and, and try to do an honorable, sincere version of. So... Uh, you know, I feel great about it, and thank you. I'm glad. It's strange because Dennis Lehane, who's a famous writer, did the you know Mystic River. Clint Eastwood oh, yeah, produced yeah, the movie, yeah, and he's right. brilliant writer. One of my yeah. favorites. I just had uh, lunch with him in Florida at a gig. I love write, read, writers, and I track them down and just kind of stalk them and make friends okay. of them. Uh, well, when I'm with big shots anywhere on the road. But anyway, he told me the same thing. He said, you know, I always admired Neil, never really got it, and your nice. record has turned me on to, to, to Neil. And I was like, well, thank you. That's a, I'll take that as a compliment. It's a total compliment for me, and I'd love to play The Loner. Love to play The Loner. This is one of the ones David Briggs' first album he produced with Neil. Kind of a more obscure track, because a lot yeah. of people don't even go far back that far back with Neil. And again, I sang it a couple weeks, all these songs alone, before I even rolled tape, to try to see if I could come up with something that's a little more my own and feel good about the version. Thanks. Coming up to the end. This is great. I'm glad I could say that and you didn't slap my face. I kind of knew no, you wouldn't. I, I knew you wouldn't. Hey. Okay, so uh, that, that was the loner. And also, you were talking there about you did pick some songs that I had not expected to be on the album. I did love Buffalo Springfield. So I love to hear again, Expecting to Fly. Oh, I mean, beautiful flying song. Flying on the ground. Flying on the ground is wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Flying on the ground. It's you, beautiful. You, you know what I, what I did, Joe? I took about 30 songs, because there's 200 great songs. But I took about 30, and I, I didn't make any demos. I didn't roll tape. For two weeks, I stayed out of the studio. And in my living room, i just sing them to my dogs, to my cats, to myself. And I just let them decide which songs moved from the karaoke field into the, I'm doing something special here. And some of my favorites never did. But fortunately, Flying on the Ground was one all-time melodies I love. Yeah. And uh, some of those, some of them I worked hard at, Don't Be Denied, we played on the uh, 
Tonight's the Night Tour here in the UK. Yeah. I just fell in love with that song. Very autobiographical and personal. Yeah. That's when I wanted to make work, and I felt like I did. But uh, Flying on the Ground was a classic Buffalo Springfield song that I think is really suited for my you know voice. It is, but it's, I'm going to play it, actually, because I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, the uh, Red Roses for a Blue Lady. Neil has that, too. The melodic beauty of this song is, is just impeccable. And there was kind of an innocence and, and a, a corniness that you know, Neil, I don't feel, has ever been corny but he had that innocence to his melody writing that is like you say reminiscent of those times yeah. and some of the even the great swing bands just the melody pure melody sure, Beatles are we're classic at it and he's right up there with them when it comes to melody back to Buffalo Springfield days sorry what's expecting to fly is that another one of the songs yeah that's another not on my record but that's a that great is, Buffalo Springfield it is, song yeah, they all wanted to fly. Well, I suppose that's fitting for the times that we're in it. Okay, Neil, we're coming down to the end of the show. I really had a fantastic time talking with you. Uh, very, it was great reminiscing and also being introduced to new music. I would like to go back an album and play uh, the, a track from, I think it's Sacred Weapon. Okay. And you know the one I picked because we talked about it before and it just has a beautiful upbeat and I love, as with Mr. Springsteen, and I didn't get this from him, I love ending radio shows on, with people on an up note. So this is one of your songs. It's, it's a, an, another recording by you. No, another long history. David Briggs, who I think spiritually produced this Neil Young project, I put his spirit on my shoulder to see a live performance through his eyes. I learned a lot on the After the Gold Rush Tonight's Tonight recordings. Um, recorded this as a demo in like 69 or 70 with me, never got released, but my band Grin was a double singer, Bob Berberick, and I sang co-leads. And my manager, Anson, once again, he said, hey, why don't you get Bob and write a song? And I said, well, I don't want to write a song, but I got this old number we never released. And Bob came down and we did a Grin treatment to it. And it's kind of in the spirit of David and how I grew up with Neil and David and what's good about rock and roll. You know, you can't take the heart out of soul. You can't take the rock out of roll. Yeah. Okay, Nils, thank you very much for being my guest in the Info. Joe, this was great. We got three more hours of material. We'll <laughs> save it for the future. All the best. <laughs> that was great. Hi, Joe Jackson here again. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Joe Jackson Interviews podcast. More can be heard, as I said, at joejacksoninterviewer.com.